Wonderful. Uh, great to be here and so nice to be in front of so many people. Thank you for uh, coming along. Now, we've got a bit of a story to start with. Collected from the west coast of Africa, from port to port, the ship will be slowly filled with African gold, ivory, beeswax, and lumber. But now, in the late, in the dark night of March the 21st, 1748, a 22-year-old sailor named John was awakened by gale-force winds battering the ship. Waves slammed into her and ripped away the upper timbers on one side, sending water through a gaping hole into into John's room. Awakened by the chaos, he jumped half-naked from his bed to furiously hand-pump back, water back into the swaying ocean. With the cold salt water pouring into the aging and broken vessels, crewmates grabbed buckets and began tossing the water back into the dark sea. Newton cranked for life while waves broke over his head. Desperation overwhelmed the doomed crew and John's heart pounded furiously with adrenaline-charged fears of being dumped overboard in the middle of the dark sea weeks away from the nearest coastline well like many sailors he couldn't swim and as John Newton later reflected he was unfit to live and unfit to die the fear of death strained its energies at the water pump but it was a battle he could not win saltwater waves continued crashing against the ship and the endless ocean of water rushed over the deck faster than the men could spit it back out. The ship creaked and groaned under the assault as the crew frenetically battled the angry forces of the sea. Well, Newton was the prime example of a wretch, an evil man. He traded slaves and he gambled his way into debt and dabbled in witchcraft. He had slept around as well as he traveled the sea he got involved in non-consensual acts with the slaves he was transporting. He delighted to lead others into temptation, later calling himself a ringleader in blasphemy and wickedness. Let's keep reading a little bit more from his biography. If any man was worthy of deliverance, unworthy of deliverance from the raging sea, it was 22-year-old sailor John Newton. In this moment, John Newton was focused on survival and frightened by the nearness of death that knocked on the door with each crashing wave. Desperate and fully expecting to die, Newton finally blurted out, The Lord, have mercy on us! The Lord's name from his mouth, that word he only spouted in vain, now struck his heart like an arrow, humbling and breaking him. Newton later reflected, I was instantly struck by my own words. This was my first desire I had breathed for mercy for many years. Although the precise time of his conversion is unknown, his plea for mercy on the sea was immediately answered. And Newton's heart, which once spewed wickedness and blasphemy, would soon become a heart gushing with beloved hymns of praise to God. This drowning wretch of a sailor would pen a hymn that endures in the minds and the hearts of people to this day. A hymn so popular that its lyrics are as recognizable throughout the English-speaking world as any national anthem. Amazing grace. That word, grace, is talking about God's free, undeserved love. God's free, undeserved love. And we just sang that song just now, didn't we? Um, 
that it is all-sufficient and free. All-sufficient and free. And we're focusing on God's grace this morning in our gathering because we've got to a point in our, work, in our working through of the book of Acts, a, a, a letter about the early church uh, just after Jesus died and was resurrected. And we're going to read today of another life-changing moment, not for Newton, but a man called Saul. He's also known as Paul. You may have heard of him if you've been around church for a bit. Um, that's another name we call him by. And he wrote a huge chunk of the Bible, and he mentions grace a lot. And we're going to use that song that Newton wrote to think along the lines of Newton's song, Amazing Grace. We're going to take some of those lines and use them to work through uh, today's account of the early church. So uh, we're going to start with this theme of the making of a wretch like me. The making of a wretch like me. We've already heard a bit about, about Saul this morning in a letter that he wrote to one of his friends called Timothy. He describes him as a persecutor. And a violent man, the worst of sinners, he calls himself. In another letter, he writes, what a wretched man I am. Well, what led Saul to feel like this? Did he just have an excessive self-hatred? Had he spent too much time brooding and become imbalanced, perhaps? Well, we're going to hear Jennifer read just a few verses from today's selection to understand a bit more about it. Thanks, Jennifer. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Thanks very much, Jennifer. So Saul was still breathing out murderous threats, and he was carrying them out as well. We heard about that a few weeks ago. Um, He approved the execution by stoning of a chap called, called Stephen. And he then began to destroy the church, as we read later on. And the word used in the, in the original language is this sense of, of a wild boar devastating a vineyard, rampant and uncontrollable. That's what, Saul, that's what this guy Saul is like. He's, he's, he's like a wild boar ravaging the Christian people around the world, or around Jerusalem. And, and now we see he's, he's moving in throughout the world. Later in Acts, we read that he put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's Saul writing. Saul had one overwhelming mission in life, and that was stamping out the spread of the gospel. He wasn't just interested in stopping Christianity in Jerusalem. He wanted to stop it and eradicate it all over the world, wherever it was found. So imagine how the Christians in Damascus felt when they heard this chap Saul was coming to them, making the week-long journey to them, and with explicit permission and purpose to imprison them and drag them back to Jerusalem to face, presumably, a similar fate to Stephen. He was like a dog with a bone, or maybe more like a lion relentlessly hunting his prey. Ananias was a Christian in Damascus at the time. We read he'd heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to Christians in Jerusalem. And he'd heard about the letter Paul carried with the authority of the religious leaders at the time to arrest anyone who identified as a Christian. 
Saul was a wretch. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And we may immediately think, well, I'm glad I don't know anyone like him. <laughs> He's not a particularly nice guy, is he? But actually, I'd say we, ourselves, are more like him than we might think. Saul was someone who'd rejected God's ways. He had an attitude of rebellion against God. And the Bible calls this attitude sin. When I look at myself, I haven't gone around killing people, but I have shown that this is my default attitude in all sorts of other ways. Over recent months, I've seen my greed come out in ways that I haven't really seen before. I can see that I often care more about my own comfort than I care care about other people. And my heart is skewed in all sorts of ways. God cannot allow our wretchedness to go unpunished. Part of his love for humanity means he cares when evil is done. We may want to rid the world of evil like Saul and slave traders like John Newton, but there's a problem. When we truly examine ourselves, each of us has a streak of evil running through our hearts. Saul is a wretch. I'm a wretch. And each person here is actually a wretch by default. So our next heading is, was blind, but now I see. And we're going to read what happens next with the help of Jennifer and Ewan. So Jennifer, can I invite you back up? Thank you. As he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Persecute me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptised, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, thanks. Thanks very much to Jennifer and Ewan for helping me with that. 
This event is recorded three times in the book of Acts. As Saul retells his life-changing moment. And he, as he was approaching Damascus with a mind bent on destruction, he actually entered it as a blind man led by the hand. Now, remember Ananias? He was understandably worried, wasn't he? His fear of Saul was not unreasonable. He received very specific instructions from God in a vision. Ananias was fearful, and initially he resists God's plan, explaining, as if God didn't know, that actually Saul's not one of the good guys. God tells him, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, and their kings, and to the people of Israel. Likely trembling, he approaches the house on Straight Street. And by the way, if you're ever in Damascus, Straight Street is still there. It's the main road in the city. You can walk along it and see it, and it is very straight. Uh, good to know if you're ever there. Ananias knocks on the door on Straight Street, and he approaches this weak, blind man praying to God. Saul would have felt, heard, and then seen three remarkable things because of Ananias' next actions. First, he would have felt something, touch. Ananias laid his hands on Saul, the one who had previously been so eager to lay his hands on people like Ananias. Saul couldn't yet see the smile on Ananias' face, but he would feel the warmth of the touch that he felt as Ananias reached out to him. Second, sound. Brother Saul. Ananias addresses Saul not as an enemy, but as a brother. This beast has become a brother. Saul had left behind his former religion, knowing he would lose a lot. Family, reputation, friends, safety perhaps. And anyone who actually starts to follow Jesus does stand to lose things. Some more than others, especially in other parts of the world. I have a friend in another country who can't tell his friends and family he's a Christian. Because if he does, he feels he's going to be rejected by everyone he knows if he goes public right now and actually could be in danger for his life. In Edinburgh today, perhaps in this room, there are people who can see what it might cost them to put their faith in Jesus. But in stepping away from one path, another path becomes available. And it comes with a new, loving community. And Ananias pictures this as he calls Saul his brother rather than a predator. So Saul has a new family. Thirdly, sight. Saul's sight was restored. He was blind, and now he could see. But don't miss the point here. This isn't just physical sight we're talking about. This is spiritual sight, too. Saul later describes all humanity as being blinded by the, by the God of this age. That is, the things that distract us from the truth and encourage us in our wretchedness. But he explains how the God who made light shine out of darkness is able to give us spiritual light in our hearts so that we can actually see the truth of Christ, who he is, God himself. That's what this unblinding represents. The scales falling away to reveal the truth. And some of our church family know a bit about what this feels like. Carolyn over there has recently had cataracts removed from her eyes. I asked her permission before I shared that medical (laughs) nugget. That's effectively scale that's built up in the lens of the eye, stopping clear vision. When I was a medical student a few years ago, I watched this amazing operation, a very quick one as well, actually, that transformed sight by replacing that scaly lens. Saul was able to see physically, 
But his spiritual sight was transformed by God's grace to him too. Saul was blind. Now he could see. We also, by default, have this type of spiritual blindness. God's grace enables us to see too. Well, we're going to pause there just for a minute while John leads us in singing this song, Amazing Grace. And that's the song that's been written by the other John, John Newton, uh, but is actually so relevant to Saul and actually to each of us. So we're going to have this song, and then we'll come back and think a bit more about the passage afterwards. As we sing, try to focus on what particular phrases mean for you. Wretch like me was blind, but now I see. Amen. 
unending love, amazing grace. Wonderful. Thank you so much to John, John, Cammy, Ellen, and Jake, and anyone else? Others, John, thanks. <laughs> wonderful. Thanks. So wonderful to reflect on that and have such a joyful uh, reminder of what grace is. Now, just to mention, uh, we forgot to say about the Q&A that you can go to. If you want to ask any questions about today, um, uh, you can go to slido.com forward slash hope city, and uh, that will enable you to ask questions about what you were sung, what we're hearing um, from, the, from God's word or anything else. So do have a look at that. Great. So next line we're going to look at is the hour I first believed. The hour I first believed. Saul's, moment, Saul's life was changed in a moment. And so was John's, John Newton's, as we read earlier. That's why he was so amazed at seeing God's grace at work to change him in that moment on the ship. And that was part of a journey with God. He didn't have it all worked out immediately, but he did start discovering the joy of knowing God from that day on and what his grace meant to him. He experienced God's grace at work in him. That's God's free, undeserved love. He knew his wretchedness, and he knew he needed God's grace to be forgiven. But that's something you, too, could decide to believe today. Your life could be changed in a moment, like Saul, just like John Newton, just like me. Often people find a reason why they're not, going, they're not quite right for God. But if Saul's story is, is teaching us one thing, it's that you're not too bad for God. In fact, you're not too anything for God. You're not too angry, bad, sad, anxious, unhealthy, busy, dirty, clean, tired, young, old, rich, poor, foreign, awkward, whatever it is. You're not too anything for God. He can work with you. If that's something you want to do for the first time today, it's pretty simple. Just speak to God in your mind and tell him you want to enjoy his grace. You want to be forgiven for your sin. And if that is something you decide to do, it's a wonderful idea to tell someone. Maybe the person who invited you here today, or maybe you just come and tell me. And if you're watching online, you can click a little button in the live stream to say that that's something you'd like to do today as well. Listen to the words of one preacher from the 1800s speaking about Saul, the self-declared chief of sinners. If the bridge of grace will carry the elephant, it will certainly carry the mouse. If the, if the mercy of God could bear with the greatest of sinners, it can have patience with you. If a gate is wide enough for a giant to pass through, any ordinary-sized mortal will find space enough. No man can now say that he is too great a sinner to be saved, because the chief of sinners was saved 1,800 years ago, now 2,000 years ago. If the ringleader the chief of the gang, has been washed in the precious blood and is now in heaven. Why not I? Why not you? If this is something you've already done, then praise God for his grace at work in your life. It's wonderful. It's amazing. If you believe in Jesus, God's amazing grace has worked on you in that hour you first believed and ever since then. Saul's story is a great reminder that our friends, family, and colleagues who seem so far away from believing this stuff are actually just a moment away. And God is in the business of using his people to be part of other people's journeys of faith. Notice Ananias wasn't actually needed. 
in this whole encounter, this whole process. But God used him. God spoke directly to Saul, telling him to go to Jerusalem, and then he'd be told what to do. By who? By Ananias. And last week we saw God use Philip in the conversion of the Ethiopian. God wants to use you to help others come to know him and receive his grace. So don't lose heart. Saul later wrote this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for the very reason, that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Well, Saul's conversion is an example of God's amazing grace for us today. Amazing grace. Now, we've looked at a big topic today, God's amazing grace. And in a moment, we're going to sing another song of reflection. And then I'm going to come back again, sorry, a bit more of me, and give a few thoughts about what this means for those who have accepted this amazing grace for themselves. The song we're about to sing focuses on God's mercy. That's his, his forgiveness, his, his, his casting away of our sin. And it shows how his mercy is more than we could ever need to cover that sin. Out of his love, God gave his life in Jesus to pay the penalty for our wretchedness. Here's what it says. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Oh, oh. 
What riches of kindness he lavished on us His blood was the payment, his life was the cost We stood neath a debt we could never afford Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more Praise the Lord, his mercy is more Stronger than darkness, new every morn Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more Praise the Thank you so much. Finally, the Lord has promised good to me. God had a plan for Saul's life. God had a plan for John Newton's life. John had a plan for Ananias' life. And God has a plan for your life. None of those plans are what the individuals involved had planned out in advance. But Saul, Ananias, and Newton can all look back and see God at work in the ups and the downs as he graciously worked out his plan through them. Ananias' dangerous trip to Straight Street shows that we can take risks because God doesn't. Saul's wretchedness is an example to show anyone can be saved and used. And God tells us his plan for Saul here. It is to be his chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the people of Israel. That's his, that's his plan for him. And that plan included great suffering, as Jesus tells him here. But God used it by his grace for good. Newton's experiences and transformation led him to extend the hand of friendship to his former slaves and work with other Christians to abolish the slave trade. Each of these people enjoyed a new relationship with God's people, the church. Even Ananias had a new relationship with Saul, the man who seemed beyond salvation. And he now realizes that no one is beyond God's grace. Perhaps that's something we need to remember for ourselves regularly Now, each of these people also faced trials. We don't know much more about Ananias, but if the lives of any other early Christians had anything to go by, he didn't have an easy ride. Saul later wrote, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, those light and momentary troubles that Saul mentions there actually involve imprisonments, shipwrecks, and loads of other things that we won't go into just now. But he considered it all worth it to know Jesus and to know his grace. And Jesus identifies with his people when they go through these trials. And we saw that in Jesus' question to Saul at the start. 
Why do you persecute me? Saul was persecuting the Christians, but Jesus is so united to his people, it's as if Saul was directly persecuting Jesus. God has promised good to you if his grace has been at work in you. He has a plan for you to live in light of that grace. So how will that show itself in your life and your priorities? If you believe God has graciously saved you, how will that grace reveal itself in your life? It looks different for each person, but it should happen. And if you haven't yet accepted God's gracious offer of forgiveness, what's holding you back? I'm going to finish now as we pray using the words of that song that John Newton wrote. Let's pray. Amazing grace. How sweet that sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It was your grace that taught my heart to fear and grace that my fears relieved. How precious did your grace appear the hour I first believed. You, Lord, have promised good to me. Your word my hope secures. You will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Amen.